Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 164 of the Australian Hiker podcast. And in this week's episode, we talk about hiking with a disability. For most hikers, we'll have a a niggle or two or, or an injury that we've collected over the period of our lives. But when this goes beyond just being a minor issue and becomes a permanent uh, impact on our lives, the ability to continue hiking can be greatly impacted and in some cases, not even an option. In this week's episode, we interview hiker Jenny Woodhouse, who talks about hiking while managing permanent spinal disability. One comment that I would like to make before we start this interview is that you'll find that uh, some of Jenny's responses can appear at first to be a bit scripted, and in all honesty, they are. What this means in practice for Jenny is in having to deal with such a high level of pain on a daily basis can be distracting. And she indicates in the interview itself that for her thinking through what she's being asked, uh, setting out how she wants to respond, just means she keeps on track and doesn't get lost in the the process uh, due to the pain itself. So Listen to her responses rather than the, uh, the the scripted manner in which she tends to respond. Um, for me, I don't know whether I could actually uh, continue to hike uh, with the disability and the level of pain she deals with. And I think it really it's an inspiration. We hope you enjoy. In this interview, we're catching up with 50s disabled adventurer, Jenny Woodhouse. Jenny, thank you for taking the time to talk with Australian Hiker. Hey, Tim and Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Your podcast has helped with so many of my marvellous adventures over the years. I love talking adventure and my story. Usually I'm quite lighthearted, but not when it comes to this topic. Preventing injury along with the treatment and ongoing management is emotional topic for me so I find sticking to the facts the best way to present this info clearly which couldn't be more important so apologies if it comes off a bit dry. Okay now before we go into the details give us a bit of a background about how how did you come to hiking? Uh, It sure is a surprising and I guess lifting story. I'll admit my story walks through Feelings of tremendous surprise, of loss and grief, yes, pain and suffering and building the courage to overcome adversity. It's also a detailed, heavy one. Tim, I think we share some of the same personal qualities like our planning adventures in quite extraordinary detail. (laughs) And poor my mountain man. And I think it all started by having exceptional parents who focused their entire fer- parenting philosophy around the core venture. They really were quite exceptional, out-of-the-box thinking parents. Perhaps that was partly due to their age. You see, mum was 42 when she gave birth to me and dad was 50. Their parenting was going to be <laughs> quite different to others. 
I think there's great value for teaching children to cherish the environment. Their adventure-focused parenting helped me to learn to set goals, which led me to discovering how incredible it felt to achieve them, how to adapt and overcome, be independent and place a high value of level of respect for both adventuring and nature. Our weekly life in Adelaide during my early years was spent by on our 44-foot cruiser every Friday afternoon, spending all weekend out on the South Australian Ocean discovering life under the sea, which was both exhilarating and magical. With great enthusiasm, they taught shark, rain, seal behaviour, and so for me it was quite in the drink, swimming with these beautiful creatures. I'll never forget the feeling I felt watching these graceful stingrays moving through the current like ballerina butterflies school holidays we'd stay around the grampians where we'd roam forever bushwalking hiking climbing every trail and beacon site i loved everything about those holidays mum waking me up at dawn pulling on my boots making our way up through wildflowers and mists and onto the summit of cool peaks like mad abrupt in my teens through to 40s as well as going on mad hiking adventures all over australia I discovered I was wildly attracted to other activities such as long-distance swimming, horse riding, open-sea kayaking, and by the age of 18, I'd completed 18 years of classical ballet. Once married and with small children, we loved nothing better than to do, to do a series of road area expeditions to some of Australia's most cherished locations like the Daintree and Cape York, which sits at the very tip of Queensland, then came the great adventures of the outback, day hiking around mystical locations like Rainbow Valley, West McDonald Ranges, and even the entire Birkin Wills Trail. Oh, there's been those snow trips and the alpine hiking adventures too. So I guess those outstanding experiences set me up for what's been happening recently. Last two years have been way off the charts, exceptional adventuring ones. You see, my mountain man and I have been busy going on what turned out to be, for me, a full-time hiking, summiting adventure during our 16-month long Australian caravanning trip. Listeners, can you imagine turning your world upside down and making the decision to prioritise taking a gap year or so where you're free to focus on your passions? My journey was dedicated to building up my body, hiking along with summiting Australia's highest peaks. In the end, I'm immensely proud to say that I in total achieved 54 summits, 200-ish hikes within a 16-month time frame. That's even more surprising when I'm also busy managing and working with being permanently disabled because of spinal cord damage. You see, I'm fused from the waist down and have no sensation in my feet, which makes king anywhere. Well, it just makes it incredibly challenging. Okay, so that brings us on to your health background. So just to provide a bit of context to today's interview, uh, give us an, an, an idea of your health background and the issues that you now live with. Oh, this is such a personal part of my story. However, as we start hitting our 50s, most of us work with managing parts of our body which are being uncooperative. I feel listeners will find value, but be warned, this is a bit of a raw one. Let's all think back to our own lives in 2011. I'd been having issues with two perhaps dips, L4 and L5, was super fit, had huge multi-day hikes locked in for the next few years. 
Sadly, though, those mad adventures weren't to be in my future as I had a workplace injury which led to the first fusing in 2011 of L4 to L5 S1. Annoyingly, the result of this injury was a spinal cord damage along with chronic pain and inability to sit. When you're still young and something so significant is thrown at you, I reckon you just have to decide whether to swim. For me, there was only one option, and that was to utilise my optimistic personality to let me not only swim but to learn to fly. Attitude can only get you so far with spinal cord damage, chronic pain, frustrating the Pain kept getting worse. So did my inability to sit and to do day things, things that we all take for granted. My spine kept deteriorating and second fusing surgery in 2013, L3 to L4, both SI joints and a laminectomy. The aim of the laminectomy is to provide more room for the spinal cord to hang out. This is achieved by the surgeon removing about half of all the vertebrae from L2 all the way down, so it's kind of a biggie. Having spinal fusing meant a heap of internal hardware, 12 7.5-centimetre screws and two 22-centimetre rods. All of that scaffolding causes a heap of rigidity and I find it annoyingly problematic when I'm clearing the giant rocks like those found on Cradle Mountain in Cozzy or Mount Townsend or Western Australians Mount Toolbrunner. Remembering the trauma of waking up from that second spinal fusing is not easy to retell. You see, I woke up from the surgery not being able to walk. I dragged my left foot behind like I was pulling a stone. I spent the next four months learning how to walk again. I admit to feeling ashamed at first when I was classified as permanently disabled. No sensation of the feet or fingertips. Further scans on my neck revealed that all the discs were affected by the disease as well. I'll just interrupt you there, um, uh, Jenny. So with the with all the hardware you've got in you, does that impact on when you go through uh, 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 airplane um, uh, metal detectors or you, uh, or is it not something that's detectable in that sort of situation? Uh, no, it certainly does. The um, hardware is made out of titanium, but I, when I turn up to the airport, I still am pulled apart pulled aside and I'm treated just like a person would be with a pacemaker so um, I go through separately so yes it adds on to travel for sure and and I suppose the other other question that raises as well I mean having metal in your back does that make you feel colder when the weather's really really cool no no I haven't really noticed that I I really love the cold so (laughs) that doesn't bother me at all okay so I just wanted to ask those questions as we're going through so I'll let you continue on in 2015 I had an implant called a spinal cord neurostimulator which if I remember correctly 17 electrodes are placed at the each nerve point all along the vertebra and spinal cord areas which connect to an internal computer and battery pack the aim is to interrupt the pain signals from the brain to the spine. Every day I lie on an RF charging mat to charge myself and I beep when I'm done. It's helped with improving mobility, less so with chronic pain. The medical prognosis and outcome was poor. No way to live, not for anyone as young as me and certainly not for someone who must have adventure at the centre of my life. But you know, there's always positive because... It's also been a journey filled with determination and focused will to be able to return to passionate love affair with hiking again. Where there's a will, there's a way. 
I couldn't be more driven, but it's taken a heap of daily support. Chronic pain has been and still is the most extraordinarily difficult thing to adapt and manage as it affects every aspect of daily life. At the moment, I'm waking up with a 6 out of 10 pain score. By 11, it increases to a 7 out of 10. And by 2, it reaches to the high 8s vicinity, somewhere around that. And that's on a good day. If I've been sitting for more than 10 minutes or if it's just a higher pain day, then it'll stay in the high 8s. The effects are significant and unfortunately involve persistent interruption of sleep, significant speech difficulties together with cognitive and processing delays. So, listeners, today you'll hear me stumbling over words a bit, mispronouncing, perhaps slurring them or talking in small, sharp chunks. That's an example of how chronic pain interrupts and affects my speech and processing. When highest, though, it affects my balance, coordination, so my walking falls apart, which is so embarrassing, general mobility and even self-care stuff. Exhaustion is a constant companion, along with concentration and memory problems. On top of the above, just like any hiker, I manage ongoing injuries in the areas of my feet, right ankle. So for every hike or something, but I attempt to go through my normal risk analysis, prevention of injury training program, normal fitness pain programs. Importantly, I pre-plan how to manage injury on the trail along with the post-hike injury management and recovery. Okay, so you've got these permanent disabilities and as you said, the, the, the fact that you've got a, a, a huge issue with managing chronic pain um, that's personal to you, but then lay it over the top of that is the issues that every hiker has to deal with. So, you know, you've got the disabilities, but you've also now got to deal with injuries that, that you or I or anybody else tend to collect on the trail <laughs> and that tends to compound this. How, how, do you man, how do you manage dealing with injuries on top of the, the disabilities? Yes, you're absolutely right. It all becomes very complicated, very carefully, very quickly. But um, I guess the common injuries, when I stop to think about them for a sec, are annoying. All I can do is be super safety-minded, be focused on doing my hike, hike prep super carefully, treat injuries quickly and have a mindset that focuses on enjoying the heck out of the adventure. I consider myself lucky because my mind still goes back to when I couldn't walk at all. Common injuries I deal with whilst hiking are ones most hikers work to manage, like dealing with substantial blisters, which according to my podiatrist are because of the particular shape of the bone on the back of my heels. I minimise secondary blisters by applying lard on my heels before each hike, together with drying out my feet carefully. I wear quality boots, which have heel locking in hardware as a part of their support. I also tie my laces a certain way. Whilst doing the Aussie 1016, I found that because my feet are both flat, I was transferring too much force through my ankles and balls of my feet. So the way I managed this issue short term was by using strapping. There's another reason for me acquiring stress fractures in the balls of my feet, and that's because I can't feel my feet at all. So I tend to stomp my foot rather than placing it. I'm doing this to help myself have better contact with the terrain to help myself with balance. It's a bad habit. I need to break it. <laughs> My feet aren't happy about it at all. Okay, so you mentioned you've, you've, you've got no feeling in your feet at all. How do you actually know that you, that you have got blisters? 
Yeah, so um, I prepare for it by covering those large, using like electroplasts on the back of my heels. I don't initially um, feel any sign of the blister until pretty much all of the skin has um, boiled up substantially or it has in fact broken. So for me, it needs to be a very much visual thing. And I have a lot of trouble um, putting my hiking boots on and off. Some days I can't do it independently. Uh, it's, only, it's something I've only been able to do about in the last six months, but not every day. So it's rare that I'll check my feet during the day whilst I'm hiking um, unless I do become aware that it's rubbed through so substantially that, yes, then I'll notice it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, as I said, you know, I, I, I know if I'm, I've got a blister coming on, I can feel it. So, um, but yeah, as I said, if you can't feel it, it that, that must make it a lot more difficult to deal with. Feet are my most difficult thing to manage, and that's because I can't feel them. Therefore, it seems more substantial damage has been caused before I notice anything's wrong. One inconvenience is losing, oh, usually four to five toenails following each larger adventure. Right now, I'm dealing with losing toenails issues on four of them and healing an abscess on one. When I'm chatting on the trail with other hikers, the most common complaint seems to be knee pain. What I've learned is that when I haven't got my training quite right, then on bigger heights or summits, my knees will swell up a bit. That's always a red flag for me to up my muscle tone around my knees and I've discovered that having good tone in my glutes has helped me substantially. I'm a huge fan of using resistance bands because they're easy to carry whilst travelling. They're very effective for improving the whole knee pain thing. It's very rare now that I have any knee pain or swelling. So for the most part, I, I guess I must have my formula for fitness training fairly well suited to each new adventure. But Tim, you're asking how do I manage the risk injury? Yeah. Early on in the transition to hiking solo when we were caravanning in Tasmania at Lake St. Clair at that end of that national park, I had a second challenging goal of summiting my first peak, which was below, which was Mount Rufus. The summit walk takes oh, about five to seven hours to complete and for the first two attempts, my mountain man helped me walk oh, probably the first 40% of the track on the way to the summit. And the reason was I needed his support whilst I became used to negotiating what was a muddy, narrow animal track type of path, which was also heavily covered with a complex rabbit warren of gnarled tree roots. The midsections of that particular track were also covered in areas of rocks and boulders where the risk of injury increases drastically. So for those first two attempts on Mount Rufus, he supported me while I worked on my associated goal of retraining the brain and all of that neuroplasticity side of things. I did my third attempt solo and got to just over 60% of the way to the summit and then a couple of days later on my fourth attempt, I managed to hike all the way solo up to the summit. Mount Rufus's summit is a tabletop summit in shape, so the actual summit itself is a no-brainer. All of the highest risk and the most challenging parts for me were associated with that, negotiating that early on first 40% and then the same in return. Okay, so everyone's style of hiking is unique, but I understand from uh, looking at a lot of your posts and a lot of the writing you've done that your style tends towards the solo. Why is that? 
Yes, my style of hiking is quite different. This is multi-day hiking, but perhaps not as most might know it. The first priority here is enjoyment. To thoroughly immerse myself in the epic wilderness experience, the fitness benefits are a happy little byproduct, but the clear goal here is always nature first, plus photography, plus peace and accomplishment, equals happiness. I'm what's called a supported solo, solo hiker because being permanently disabled, there's no way I could hike without support. When you think about that in the context of being a 50s solo hiker who just happens to be managing disability, I understand that our audience will equate that to a heap of risk. But let's look at that closer. The breakdown would be 50s. I can't do anything about the age, but with that comes the advantages of having decades of remote experience off track and on track throughout Australia and New Zealand. Solo. The solo part means that I'm hiking all of the tracks and summit on my own two feet completely alone. The responsibility side means that if I was to find myself in a bit of a messy situation, I'd need to get myself out. Yep. The supported bit of the term supported solo means by my mountain man, together with my medical team, his involvement has been absolutely critical in my overall enjoyment and the success of achieving all of these impossible, possible goals. So listeners might be wondering, what does he actually do to support me? Well, it's a heap, literally. He helps me right from the very start of my hiking day by helping me with things like driving me to drop-off points in the pre-dawn light and then picking me up after the adventure's finished. Being my one of two safety contacts, he follows my hiking progress by iPhone and PLB GPS tracker. He does the cooking and washing up and assists with some personal care aspects, both on the day of the hike and the recovery day. There would also be an occasional two where he'd need to pack up the van and move it by himself. And for any of you who caravan, you'll understand this is more difficult to do by yourself. Lastly and most importantly, he'd need to be 100% supportive with my adventure focus. I'd also need to rely on his advice when I discussed some of my bigger adventure goals with him and the high risks attached. What I'm asking is a heap to ask of another human being, don't you think, Tim? Uh, definitely, and I think I think Jill says that about me and, and, and I don't have any disabilities. <laughs> <laughs> then... The next part of the breakdown is hiker. Although I hike differently to most, I have transitioned to achieve many cool multi-day hiking trails and have successfully summited 54 of Australia's highest peaks. Thinking of attesting a percentage of time to my adventure activities, I guess I'd fall into the category of perhaps being more than a part-time hiker and even on those days when I'm not out there, I keep my mind filled to overflowing with all things adventuring. Keeping my mind so nature and adventure focused helps lower injuries along with managing both the fitness and the mindset side of my spinal-based disability because managing the fitness side of my disability is, well, it's significant. My hiking style is quite different to most hikers, I feel, as I'm capturing my adventures in tremendous detail. In particular, I like to photograph and film not only the overall journey, 
I capture the botanical and landscape features too. I've set myself a goal of trying to capture the feeling of each hike or mountaintop climb and sharing them with so, to social media, at least just recently. I've started doing that, but it's in the hopes that I'll encourage people just to get out there, do it safely, and view hiking perhaps from a different hiking style. Instagrammers seem to be enjoying my pics. The last bit of the breakdown is the disabled part. With my own body and mind, I manage difficulties in the areas of balance and agility, along with flexibility issues, which are a direct result of all that restrictive hardware in my spine. Hiking on uneven ground, when you can't feel your feet, presents all sorts of challenges. That aspect certainly needs to be managed carefully to minimise the risk of injury. Then there's the managing the pain aspect, which continues to be fiendishly difficult. Given my circumstance, I manage those risks by implementing four key routines. The aim of those four routines is to up the on-hike experience and its enjoyment factor and aimed at the important topics like the prevention of injury, to achieve my overall hiking plan and speed up recovery. So I have a very carefully thought out afternoon and evening before hike routine, morning off a hike routine, day hike and summer routine, and finally, an active recovery routine. You've been asking me why solo? Well, there's actually a number of reasons which involve increasing safety, preventing injury as well, which I guess at first they're not going to make sense to our listeners. I just bet you're all shaking your heads. I know Jill will be thinking, how on earth can it be safer for her to hike solo? Well, let me explain. The process of relearning to bushwalk, hike and summit was quite an organic process which became more successful over time. Once I started hiking solo, I realised I was having way less slips and jars and falls and Generally speaking, my energy was increased whilst hiking solo and certainly my enjoyment factor soared too. The reason to do is to do with my brain not receiving any feedback from my feet as a direct result from the spinal cord injury, scarring on the nerve post-surgeries. You see, when I'm walking on uneven ground or rock scrambling or climbing, I need laser focus to work out the correct foot play placement for every step I the brain concentration requires enormous energy, extra time, and the disability aspect affects my concentration significantly. So when I'm hiking solo, I'm able to concentrate 100% on step placement. Really, unfortunately, I've discovered that when I hike in a group, that my brain doesn't cope as well. When I'm distracted, I slip, jar and fall and certainly become way more tired much earlier on in the hike than I normally would. So there's... That's the number one reason for hiking solo, and that's to increase my safety. The other reason, though, is really personal. You see, it, it comes back to the importance I place on setting on what is actually a really challenging goal, the ones I call the impossible possible goals. Choosing to regularly prioritise including tough or seemingly impossible physical challenges in my life one sort of really stretch and inspire me is something I value highly. And I think it all started with just deciding to give adventurous things a good old Aussie crack. 
examples of what I'd call my impossible possible goals. And I'm thinking of the major ones that I achieved during those 16 months of our continuous adventures. I won't like doing the Cradle Mountain Summit hike. I know you've done part of that. I listened very clean, keenly to the post and it is really difficult and even more difficult for someone like me. And then there's other peaks like Mount Roland in Tassie and, and Mount Townsend in Cozzi and Queensland Mount Tipperargan. Then there's all the multi-day walks like the Three Capes Trail in Tassie, Grampians Peaks Trail in Victoria, Capes Cape Trail in Western Australia. And <laughs> of course, the icing of the cake is the Aussie 1016. What I gain from setting goals that are so tough that they are stretching my ability is immensely important to me. Thanks to these impossible possible goals, I've received bucket loads of positives like lowering injuries, gaining resilience and an incredibly sharpened focus improving problem solving, implementing a never give up attitude and learning to adapt to the unexpected, let alone the predictable elements like the physical fit side. These are all important qualities I can transfer into other areas of my life. Okay, so now we, you, you, you do a lot of solo hiking uh, and solo hiking means different things to different people. So what sort of distances do you tend to cover as an average? Well, with me, it comes back to injury prevention in mind and they range quite a bit, anywhere from a minimum of 5Ks to my biggest day, which was 33. Normally, they sit in the 12 to 20K range and in my situation, I can't hike back-to-back days, not usually. My standard pattern is to hike one or perhaps two days max and then have an active recovery day. When I'm in a building fitness phase, I'll average 20 to 40 kilometres a week. Here's the thing, though. I don't think that hiking long amounts when you're in the building fitness phase is necessarily the right approach or not on a consistent basis because I think that puts us all at a higher risk of injury. Instead, I prefer to intersperse decent hikes over differing terrain with much more targeted or specific exercising in smaller doses. I think, I think from my perspective, I agree with you on that one. I, I don't have disabilities, but that's a very similar sort of pattern to what I do in preparing for my hikes. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't do a lot of big distance hikes leading up to my long distance hikes, but I, I, I intersperse the long days and the short days. So, you know, you're sounding like you've got a good preparation regime sorted out there. Absolutely. And then when I'm in my peak fitness phase going through my doing an impossible possible goals, I'll average um, in the range of 50 to 70 kilometres per week range, although the Cape to Cape track ended up being an epic adventure of 150.2 k's for 11 hiking days. Then there's the high value items like adding in the subject of the importance of challenging terrain Here I'm referring to the benefits attached to negotiating large-sized boulders, increasing elevation quickly and climbing over giant boulders leading up to summits like um, Tassie's Mount Roland or Ramshead Range in Cozzi or Mount Townsend, for example. I'm guessing from your comments there that, um, you know, I'll give you an example. We did the, the red track in Bungonia National Park a couple of months ago, and that, there's a section there where you have no choice but to go over, under or around boulders that are three to four metres in size. 
Do you, I'm guessing you're going to be doing a lot of planning with your preparation of your hikes and does that mean that you'll look at a hike and say, I either need to find an alternative or I need to choose something else? If if, if you are put in a situation where, you know, you, you physically cannot manage to get around a certain pieces of terrain? Um, well, I haven't. It comes back to a few things. It comes back to researching the area properly and I watch a lot of YouTube videos. So I have a really good mental picture of what, the terrain is going to be that I'm going to be encountering. And if you use Cradle Mountain for an example, because that's one we're both familiar with and it does have the really big rocks up the top area, um, where the Sticks Guide hikers up, there was a couple of rocks where I just couldn't manage and it's because of the limit in my reach. I'm five foot seven and so that I would be able to find ways around and sometimes it will take me a little bit of extra time. And then the other thing that it also comes back to, I won't consider doing a track unless I know that for about 80% of the track I have um, mobile signal and that only needs to be one bar 3G, 4, 4G. So there's a few different areas there to be considered. But generally speaking, I haven't yet. In fact, I shouldn't say generally speaking, I haven't at all being stopped. Cradle Mountain was really hard and also was um, Mount Townsend in um, trying to negotiate those really bigger rocks. Okay, now that, that's sort of a, a good lead into logistics in general. So as a hiker with a spinal-based permanent disability, what unique solutions do you need to come up with to allow you to keep onto the trail? And I suppose we'll look at things like planning equipment, uh, pain management and rest and recovery. So uh, where what are, the, what are the unique things that you would have to deal with that, that, that a typical hiker may not have to consider? Well, for me, it all comes back to goal setting, and we have already talked a little bit about that. That's really important for me to an appropriate goal, one that's going to really stretch me but not be too big. Um, and then there's also the fitness training side, which for me is really important. But let's face it. Planning is everything and I definitely fall into the high end of the focus planning group, very A-type personality. So to say I take planning seriously, it's a vast understatement. So listeners, let's dig in deep here because I love the planning aspect. Perhaps my take on it, you know, it might be a bit different for most. The synopsis for my planning would be a successful hike from a enjoying adventure mindset so my motto is plan for success but what I actually mean by that is plan to enjoy the journey have a positive mindset make the most of it plan to take a few little breaks where you're just simply sitting still and observing nature if that's what makes you smile one of the first planning steps revolves around researching the track or mountain as much as possible <laughs> boy oh boy I'm so grateful for tech for making this part easier for me. Coming from a detail-minded but inability to sit situation, you might be supposed to learn that I do most of my planning while I'm lying down and just to think that 80% of that is done on my iPhone. And there I go, deep into a world of everything from Googling blogs to normal websites like Australian Hiker, Life of Pi, um, ones to looking at the National Park info and talking with park rangers. I also value a heap of online um, content with dedicated Facebook groups like joining the Cape to Cape Facebook group early on in my researching phase. 
Then there's some tracks or regions that have apps like Wilson's Palm and Cape to Cape. And it doesn't matter which mountain I'm attempting or whatever track it might be from a cool multi-dayer to a hike, you can bet off watch everyone else's version on YouTube first. I absolutely love that. Um, nearly every night I drift off to sleep listening to a hiking podcast. And actually podcasts like Australian Hiker, Real Trail Talker, have helped me a heap when I'm in the researching phase because they help me to build a mental picture. And that's important for my circumstance. In addition to them um, being really relaxing, which is also important. I find I'm really serious about the planning, about the topic for planning for safety and having a good injury prevention and management plan in place. You know, at heart, I really am a safety first kind of girl. So that aspect is way high up there on my planning list. Um, sorry, Jenny. Now that brings me to a question that you mentioned earlier on. You said you've got a, a GPS tracker. What sort of tracker do you use so that your husband can follow you along and, and know where you are at any given point in time? It's, it's a spot. spot it's yep. a spot, a black and orange spot. So yep. it has the capacity to, um, we've set up um, two preset messages and my messages, you can set up anything you want. Mine, mine is, the first one is, I have injured myself, but I can walk out of there. Please allow a 30% extra amount of time. And then the second preset message is, have injured yourself, please come and get me. Um, and then, of course, you have the SOS button that would go straight direct to worldwide search and rescue services. But I've never had to press any of those buttons. And, um, you know, I accept that injuries can happen at any time. And all I can do is plan to minimise the risk as much as I can. Okay, so from a planning perspective, um, I'm assuming you're carrying a pack of some sort. Um, um what uh, is it any particular type of pack or is it just a stock standard pack you get in any hiking store and if so what sort of weight uh, range do yes. you tend to carry uh yes it ranges uh, from five to eight kilos in weight and it and it's packed and it's a black wolf 30 liter day pack and i believe there's two parts to how you can approach thinking about the pack um i'd like to consider the contents and how I'm going to pack it to distribute the weight carefully because that's important in regards to how the mechanics of the body movements work once you throw some into the equation. And incorrectly packed can have repercussions, especially when more aggressive manoeuvres like boulder scrabbling or climbing up large slabs like those on cradle summits. You really feel it when you're jumping from rock to rock if you haven't nailed this. If I don't get all of that right, then the outcome would be an increase of injury and it could have an impact on my safety. Of course, weight is definitely a consideration, but because I'm a solar hiker and because of my particular circumstances, um, safety is the overriding factor there. So it doesn't matter if I'm just going on a two-hour hike or a day hike. I always pack as if I was going to be caught out overnight. And so I carry everything that I'd need to cope if that happened. And I'd add in some bases like a hoochie and rope and pegs and emergency blanket, extra food, water purification tablets, thermals, reindeer. Um, so although... 
although, you know, I suppose the aim of the night, of course, is not going to be luxurious camping by anyone's yep, yep. Um, stretch of the imagination. It's, it's just a survival thing, and I'm quite comfortable with that idea. I wouldn't have any problem in the world coping overnight. So, um, so it's maybe a little bit different to other hikers. I don't. I do pass a lot of hikers on the trail that have. They might have the same size pack as mine, as in a 30 litre or a 25 litre, but you can see they hardly have anything in there and they're certainly not, don't, don't appear to be um, having it packed as if they're going to be caught out overnight. And for me, I plan for that not to happen, but should it ever happen, I want to make sure that I'm going to be just fine. No, that's fine. Now, you mentioned before as well that uh, you know you typically might do one or maybe two days at a time. So how, how do you actually work that out? So you talked about your act, having an active recovery plan. How does that actually work? And I'll, I'll, I'll specify this in relation to the Aussie 10 hike up in, uh, in the Kosciuszko National Park. So if you're doing that, how do you actually... Do, one or, do you plan on finishing the hike on one or two days or do you plan mm-hmm. on being at a point where you can get collected or get out and then come back in again? Yeah. I, to my thought, you'd be curious about that. Well, my Aussie tenant adventure, and I actually ended up um, achieving 15 of the 16 highest peaks there, it happened over two trips. The first two um, trips were two weeks over Easter in um, last year and then eight days over December last year and both of those um, camps we were based at Lake Jindabyne because we're traveling with dogs that's the closest we could get to Charlotte's Pass unfortunately so um, but it was also a good location as far as for me doing um, my active cold water therapy which is absolutely essential so the way that would work though because as we know, the the um, Aussie Ten Sixteen is is based on a, a track that's twenty two kilometres in in length. It's the main track, main range track, and and but only two out of the Aussie Ten summits are on that track, and all the others are out if it's in the wilderness. So yep. what I'd do, I'd set I'd set goals to break those mountains up. So I'd target a few mountains in a particular area. Um, like the group around Mount Twynham area. So I'd leave from Charlotte Pass before dawn and hike out and do Mount Twynham and Little Mount Twynham and and go out um, to Watson's Crags over the back. And so I'd do that hike in one day and that would be plenty enough for me. And then a couple of days later, I'd come back and um, I'd um, then head out and do ones like um, Mount Signal, which isn't actually um, one of the Aussie 1016, but it was so beautiful I couldn't bear not to do it. Yeah. Um, and then I'd do um, all the hill-shaped ones all together. But that the hardest one, of course, was that very last day, the 33-kilometre uh, um, day with five summits, and they were um, Mueller's Peak, which I've already done before, and then I went out to Alice Wilson. And then Mount Townsend, which I had done before, but I really wanted to see if I could find an easier way up that one. So I did that a second time, and no, there wasn't an easier way. I was going to, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about Mount Townsend. I mean, that's that's a, that's a difficult enough summit for an for an able-bodied person, let alone anyone that's got any disabilities. So, yeah. did, did you manage to get to this right up to the summit of Mount Townsend, or you had to stop short? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. I've got it both times and I have photos and I take videos the whole way up. And so um, Mount Townsend was my third. And then um, what's after that? Mount Abbott. Um, I re- and so I did Mount Abbott, which was a no-brainer. Really wanted to do Mount Defer, but um, I just was going to run out of time because those those set of uh, mountains are set out quite a little bit of way and it takes quite a bit to get back to the main range track from those particular mountains. And then once I got back on the main range track, a lot of it was covered in snow and I actually had quite a bit of trouble walking back through about a kilometre of deep, soft snow, which did incur some falls. And then lastly, once I had got back to um, the toilet, so I went um, a little bit further on the on the um, little, oh, I'm trying to think of the hut, the little hut on the way back to Charlotte's Park. Uh, Seaman's hut. Yeah, Seaman's yeah, hut, but... um, where Etheridge Ridge Peak is, and that was my fifth summit of the day. So, um, so yes, going back to your original question, I target a particular area, and as many of the mountains that are in that particular area, but that last day, the 33-kilometre day, five summits, that was definitely quite extraordinary and it took me 14 hours and and 50 minutes and it was the most incredible adventure i loved every single second of it it was so great i'd kill to do it again i could do it tomorrow (laughs) yeah yeah all right so um i suppose uh, from from there um if we head on to um you know you talked about um, you know, your recovery time. So obviously you, you, do your, you do your walks, you'll have your break, you'll come back and do the next section, you'll, you'll do it over a period of days. Um, now, as part of that, you've got pain management to deal with, and I'm guessing that's probably your limiting factor there, that um, you, know, you get to a point where enough's enough and you've got to take a break to let the, the pain subside a bit. Um, is there anything you, you have to do on trail for pain management or it's more about the planning to make sure you can cope with what you've got for the day? Well, there's kind of two different things there. We've got the recovery time, which is one subject, and then pain management is another, and they do sort of go in between. But if we look at the recovery time subject first, I use the term active recovery, and I have quite a specific plan for my particular recovery routine. What I think listeners may find helpful My go-to multi-day hike plan is to spend one day hiking a decent hike, say in the 15, 20K range, and then have an active recovery day and then repeat. Or depending on the terrain, like if there's, say, 15 kilometres of deep, soft sand beach walking or if there's going to be a heap of snow walking, then I prefer to break them up into two smaller, say, 8 to 12 hiking days back-to-back followed by a recovery day. My Active recovery days and physical rehab days are made up of three to four 30-minute sessions per day from sunrise to sunset, and they're made up of doing a range of exercises in the cold water. And whilst no one likes freezing water, it's a very brutal thing to do. I, I hate the pain more. And in between those rehab sessions, I'll sandwich in a variety of activities, anything from sightseeing to doing a really cool cave tour, going on a couple of 1K walks, um, working on general journal writing, social media stuff along with photography stuff. And 
I'll add in wandering around with my camera during sunset hour um, to focus on photography and to do that, I'll get into a range of body positions, some of which require me to get down the ground and all of that combined movement adds up and helps recovery. So the main focus on a recovery day is to treat injury, manage pain and the overriding key is to remain active as long as you don't or as long as you aren't managing any more substantial injury. Okay, and the um, and the pain management on the trail um, is that is, is is that more focused on getting the planning right, or if you do get pain on the trail, what 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 do you what do you do that if it's if it's out of the out of the ordinary? Yeah, well, the thing about about chronic pain is that it's for me anywhere it it's always up in the high sevens and eights twenty four seven. So the advantage is there. I suppose, is that I'm well used to having that pain. But there's a number of um, strategies that I use that I think um, general hikers will find, you know, people that are in their late 40s and upwards will will find helpful. I'm constantly amazed by the range of hikers I met on the trail who are each working with some part of their body that isn't painful. Some people talk about knee pain being the most um, difficult and along with areas of hips and ankles and heaven forbid lower back pain, sciatic pain, which is just horrible, neck pain. Um, I find if you do find that the pain's really niggling away at you, then there's so much you can do about it. And Tim, I guess I've only got time for probably a few suggestions, but I have at least 15 pain management tips, which I call my 15ers. So why don't we talk through the top ones? Yep. So thinking pain management from a training perspective, I don't want to bore people here, but whilst it doesn't all boil down to training, doing the right movements in the right amounts and training to have a strong mindset, one devoted to consistency of training is imperative. Consistency in your training is actually really important. It has a huge effect on pain management. To help with your training, why not go to the app store and look for training podcasts? Um, my favourite is the well, with the hiking ones. My favourite is the training for trekking podcast by Rowan Smith. The first step revolves around setting your appropriate hike goal or summit goal, then working out the minimum training program that you can easily do, no matter what happens in the week. And then, if you achieve that eighty percent of the time, you're going to come out on top without aggravating pain. I I pace my training to increase in difficulty gradually. And thinking of my list of 15 is, I think breaking your hike up into manageable chunks has been life-changing. And we that was what I did. It's what I do on all of my hikes, but we were talking about that. With That's the method that I use to achieve the Aussie 1016. But the key is you have to be really honest there about admitting where you're at in your fitness, your current ability and how you've trained leaning up to that point and managing hikes to that ability. I usually aim to stretch my ability or challenge myself by no more than, say, a 20% increase in difficulty in hike or summit. Any more than 20%, then my enjoyment factor would plummet, my pain would go sky high and my safety analysis risk would it's just go through the roof. I've learned that it's just really important to really look at your 
hike's length, its duration, without missing out on experiencing challenging terrain. My third tip would be to use the terrain to help with pain management when you're on the trail. So let's all imagine we're hiking along a long nine-kilometre section of deep, soft sand. did numerous times on Western Australia's Cape to Cape track. What I mean by using the terrain is to carefully keep scanning the beach terrain, looking for areas where you can walk on something other than soft sand. You might try walking in the compacted sand from another hiker's larger set of footprints. You might take advantage of patches of larger sand and indeed it's really important to time your hike with low tide. I like to look for grippy rocks and believe it or not, rock hopping is actually your friend as it provides different opportunities to use different muscles and your brain to work out different patterns to hop through. It improves balance, circulation. It's a great way to manage the monotony of a nine-kilometre stretch of deep, soft sand because you're using those different muscles and as a result, not overloading the same old muscles, you'll discover this works in your favour in the area of pain management. You'll find in most cases your beach will be broken up with rocky patches. So next time, provided they're not slippery, Walk on there. My fourth tip would be be attentive to your body. So whilst you're hiking on the sandy beach, make sure you're checking in with your body from time to time. When you do identify a niggling issue, do something about it then and there. For example, if certain parts are starting to hurt, be hurt, and, and for me it's lower back that starts yelling at me first, you might try taking a tiny break, lying down on a towel or or something else and doing some stretches and laying for two with your knees bent. If the pain's already bolted though, I'll use mindfulness training during short breaks to concentrate on the smaller things like the sound of the ocean and the pattern of the waves or something physical like holding a a shell and focusing in on that. Either way, I find the combination of positional changes together with mindfulness practice really helpful. Topping off my top five list is adapting, and this is something people can try out or not try out, but adapting to use that cold water therapy because for me nothing even comes close to decreasing my pain than that. I find it takes me a couple of minutes of standing chest deep in freezing water to go numb and then once that happens, I'll, I'll stay numb for a good two and a half hours. And for me, that's brilliant. Nothing else achieves that. And once numb, though, I'm not just standing still. I'm going through all of my range of structured physical therapy program in the icy water. My program involves stretching and flexibility along with upper body strengthening and cardio. It's tremendously effective, actually yeah. life-changing. Now, I was going to say, I mean, you know, it's one one of the things with hiking, the physical side of things is certainly something that everyone has to deal with depending on their own personal circumstances. The other side of things is the mental preparation. And and given given that you've got um, a, a series of disabilities that you've got to go through and manage, what's more difficult for you? Is it the physical or is it the mental or is it going to depend on a, in a particular on the particular hike and the particular day? Oh, gosh, guys. Yes and yes. After doing those 200 hikes and 54 summits, I've come to the conclusion that 60% of the battle of a serious hike or a multi-day or a summit adventure is 
managing the mental aspect. Most of the mental challenge component for me revolves around managing the pain whilst hiking. However, whilst on the trail, I've also experienced some major breakthroughs in regards to how to manage the highest level better and how to use positive pain management tools of pacing and mindfulness and using distraction to turn the pain volume down a little. These breakthroughs have, well, they've enabled me to transform my life. There are other components which many hikers need to manage which fall into the mental challenge side of the ledger. Things like managing last-minute pre-trip nerves, nerves on the trail. And things get a little bit more complicated and by complicated, I'm, I'm thinking about atrocious weather like you and Jill experienced while doing your recent snowshoeing adventure. Gosh, those photos were hilarious. <laughs> um, then there's the struggles we all face when a hike takes us longer than anticipated when a part of the central kit is packed or lost or when sudden illness or injury happens. That's when doing effective prep jumps in to save you, I believe. If you think back to each of those components, the weather, the timing, the thickening of the pack or the loss of an item or when injury occurs, there's so much you can do to avoid each of those. And then in the odd situation where it's just an unfortunate instance, that's when having a range of strategies and a positive mindset comes to play. I'm a big one for taking responsibility for my own stuff-ups. Believe me, no one could be harsher on me than I am myself. Perhaps that approach has enabled me to focus more on safety planning and training because at the end of the day, it's up to me to ensure I have a successful day and I've thrown all I can to achieve my goal, whether it's a simple day hike or one of my insanely complex, impossible possible goals. And Tim, this is where it gets super serious for me because I'm always mindful that I'm only one significant injury or a stuff up away from not being able to have my freedom in this way and having lost the ability to walk before I'll do all I can to avoid anyone placing a full stop on my hiking dreams listeners out there I, I really want you to know that I've never once had to when I've been out in the trail I've never once had to be in a situation where I can't walk myself out from nor have I ever had to ask for assistance or press that SOS button on my PLB GPS tracker though Indeed, except that injury and accidents can happen anywhere at any time, and it's to me to manage the situation carefully. Okay, so as a as a general thing, I mean, I know everybody is different, um, but what would be your key pieces of advice for other hikers managing disabilities while out on the trail? Well, in my opinion, it really does just come down to two aspects: your pre-hike planning and your mindset. But really, I just want our listeners to enjoy the heck out of the experience. I want you to take all the time you need on your adventure to focus on the individual aspects you love. Sit and soak up the scenery, feel the five sensory experience. Take all the time you need to photograph those beautiful wildflowers or whatever it is that makes your heart soar. Write a journal note in your smartphone or even a poem if that's your thing. Whatever it is that makes you happy, just Add extra time in your plan to make that happen too. And if you do become injured, stop and treat it. Focus on taking the extra time you need to get off the track safely because as long as you're safe, there will always be another time to have a second adventure 
at your trail or on your sub- summit. And in my life, there's always time for a new adventure. Okay. Now, one final question is, um, you know, you've you've done all these amazing things over the last sixteen months, and I must admit, you know, given given the disabilities that you have, you know, doing thirty three kilometre days is pretty good for anybody, let alone someone with, <laughs> with with severe spinal disabilities. So, what what's what's the the goal for um, the rest of this year and next year? What's the what what are the big things you're working on or working towards? I'm at the end of my 2020 winter spring summit hike program. Right now, um, I'm in the process of achieving my 55th summit. So, so far during this winter and spring, I've achieved a mix of summits like Mount Beewar and Mount Maroon in southeast Queensland, along with a heap of day hikes through the region's national parks and multi day walks like the Sunshine Coast Hinterland Great Walk, which is four-day, multi-day hike and over a seven-day time frame for me. Fantastic little multi-dayer. Um, there's been a couple of microholes that I didn't achieve during the winter section, which I will put into next year. Ones like Mount Barney Summit Hike and Conondale Great Range Walk, which is another multi-dayer. Um, so there's, there'll be a range. There's always a range. I, I prefer alpine hiking, but because we finished those 16 months away, I'm now... Um, having to hike in southeast Queensland. So I have probably about eight summits on my list for next year and then probably two multi-day hikes. So far, that's so far. Yeah, yeah, that's always the way, isn't it? So we've been talking with Jenny Woodhouse about hiking with permanent disability. Now, while most people don't have to deal with this degree of physical issues, it shows what perseverance and tenacity can do to keep you hiking. Jenny, thank you for taking your time to talk with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Tim and Bill. Okay, so that was our interview with Jenny Woodhouse. Uh, and certainly from my perspective, I'd been aware of Jenny for a couple of years now and been following her on Instagram and uh, seeing what she has been up to. And it, it prompted me uh, when I started thinking about hiking with injuries, which was our last podcast uh, about hiking with disabilities. Now, certainly there's no one disability. Uh, everyone, every disability is unique and is different. But in Jenny's case, she's got fairly severe spinal disabilities. Uh, and I must admit, I don't know whether I could do what Jenny does um, in just listening to her talking about the level of pain and the physical, you know, the operations and what she's had to go through to get her to a stage of being able to get out and about. Yeah, I think I'm just left with, wow, <laughs> what an inspiration. And I, I know you can tell that it's hard work and she puts a lot of, you know, deep thinking into um, what she's going to do and how she's going to do it and, and how to stay within her um, capabilities, but also push that boundary, that 20%. And uh, I I think I'm a little bit humble at this minute. And, um, you know, I don't think I will ever complain about a sore knee or a blister on my toe ever again. I mean, it really does put a whole lot of things into perspective and um, it just shows you that all sorts of things are possible. 
And I think, I think you know, there's just so much to take away from this episode. And I think certainly from my perspective, um, you know, Jenny is obviously a planner. Um, and, yeah, and it's, <laughs> Which is kind of good, really, isn't it? It's, it works out. <laughs> and, and, and I think with the, the, the level of disability and the physical, in, uh, physical impact on her body and what, what, what it does means that, you know, you really do need to think about all sorts of processes. And, it's, you know, it's, it's just sheer luck that she happens to, to like the planning side of it just as much as the actual hiking. So she spends a lot of time preparing uh, to uh, uh, be able to go through and do the hikes. Uh, she's conscious of being able to contact her support uh, to uh, get her out if need be. So she's either, uh, she's either carrying her mobile phone or she's also got a spot as well. Uh, so she can actually send a satellite message to to someone if you know just to let them either know that she's okay, she's travelling a bit slower uh, than she'd planned, or uh, that she needs help uh, to get her out. It's an interesting one, isn't it? This this preparation um, for hiking, and and she obviously doesn't take anything for granted, and and goes to that sort of effort. And uh, we were talking to a local ranger recently about. Um, you know, some people who were well able to do some distances who did very little planning whatsoever um, in a local hike and got lost and uh, (laughs) rangers had to go out in the middle of the night and find them and they couldn't find them and, you know. I I, I guess my point is that, yes, she does a lot of preparation and a lot of planning, but I think there are a lot of people out there who also need to do a lot more preparation, a lot more planning. One of the things I found really interesting is Jenny is a solo hiker, and yeah, and you, and you think of someone that's of, amazing, yeah, of, of the of the degree of physical injury that she's got. Uh, you think of the last thing she'd be doing is wandering around by herself in the middle of nowhere, and certainly uh, when she, she she relayed a story about when she first started off and. Uh, she had a particularly difficult hike where, uh, you know, it took her four attempts to get there, and and, and initially having her partner help her out uh, to to go through that process, and, and yeah, and when we did question her about why solo hiking, uh, she was saying that she, you know, she's got no feeling in her in her feet, so she needs to really focus on where she is placing her feet. Uh, and and you know, having somebody else there who's chatting, talking to you, distracting you, uh, in her case is actually uh, a hindrance rather than yeah, a help. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and particularly given, you know, as she said, she she can't feel her feet, so you know, she tends to stomp a bit, which causes stress fractures and other issues as well. So yeah, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that you would expect someone with this degree of disability to hike with someone all the time. But in Jenny's case, it's the exact opposite. But she is prepared. She, you know, as she said, she's not carrying an overly large pack. But if she gets caught out, uh, she can actually keep herself looked after and sleep overnight if she really has to. You know, she's got a phone. She's got a satellite communicator. So if something's really gone wrong, uh, she's she's able to contact and get help. Uh, and I think this is this is the thing that uh, um, you know it. it her physical condition really does force her into the, the pre-planning, the decision on what's happening on trips, 
uh, you know, choosing whether she can do a trip or not uh, rather than just going out and doing it and then trying to deal with something that may or may not go wrong uh, 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 you know, uh, when she's actually out in the middle of the bush. Yeah, and, you know, I think some people might think, wow, you know, that's a little bit reckless going out when you've got those sorts of inju- injuries. But as you say, she's incredibly well prepared. She's done a lot of planning and um, she clearly has a, you know, a, a deep understanding of her own capabilities um, and, um, you know, there are probably a lot of people who don't think too much about those sorts of things who get themselves into all sorts of trouble and, you know, I just come back to it that, you know, she's worked it through. She's obviously uh, analytical in, in that sense. So she talks about being a, a, a planner but I think deep down there's a, there's an analytical aspect to her uh, that she's explored all the possibilities and the avenues and yeah I, I think it's just amazing and, and um, you know just very very inspired uh, by what she's doing. We asked her about a key takeaways and again a lot of these takeaways are things that really apply to all hikers not just someone with a disability you know, and a lot of them really come down to you know careful planning careful thinking and again it, it really 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 the theme is planning 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 through all of this. Uh, yeah, and she she's been doing this long enough now that she, you know it, she said it's rare that she'll ever hike two days in a row, but when she does, she's hiking anywhere from five to thirty three kilometers a day, and thirty three kilometers a day for someone who doesn't have major injuries or <laughs> we did twenty six the yeah. other day and that was enough. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, someone who doesn't have a major injury or doesn't have a major disability. That's a good distance for anybody anyway. That's a big day, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I mean, probably the main difference with Jenny is not being able to do the back-to-back days over a period, over an extended period, uh, but she caters for that. So, she, you know, she, she gave a good example of what's known as the Aussie 10 hike, which is the 10 highest summits in Australia, um, and she ended up doing the 16 highest summits. Uh, and you can just keep on adding because you know, they, most of Australia's really, really high peaks are in a fairly tight, confined area. Let's go here, there, go there. Oh, oh let's go that one over there. So, you know, she, uh, she did that over a period of, of separate days. Uh, and, you know, and that's a bit of a logistical nightmare. I mean, she talked about Mount Townsend. Uh, and for anyone who's actually gone to the summit of Mount Townsend, it's a struggle Without, you know, with, for anybody without injury. I think we um, dropped our packs, didn't we, halfway yeah, up? Yeah, we did. We, <laughs> we, we left the packs there and came back and got them because, you know, you, it, it's a rock scramble however you look at it. And it's uh, – um, I was talking to her outside the interview and she said she she – she had a couple of. She tried it from a couple of different different uh, sides to see which was the best area, and we we've done the same thing. You think, I oh, know this is too difficult. We'll we'll try another side and realise the other side's probably just as it bad, was, if not worse. Yeah, the the first one was the best one. Um, you know, the, I think she Jenny obviously knows herself very well, um, and that's the other thing you know about this that uh, she's she's thought about. Uh, what happens at certain times and how she feels about it and how she thinks about it and what she's going to do about it and and again you know it's it is it is one of those things that uh, unless you're forced to a lot of people tend not to focus on so even 
even if you are, you know, able to race up the steepest mountain in the shortest possible time, spending a bit of time understanding you, I, th- I think, is worthwhile in any um, pursuit and cer- certainly in hiking. Okay, so we hope you found that interesting. Um, just before we finish off with Jenny's um, uh, interview, um, Jenny has a brand ambassador or a brand sponsor, which is Carl's Cool RV, uh, and they've been kind enough to offer discounts, a 15% discount for all of their caravan accessories and products. Uh, just go to their online store, and if you go to the, the Australian Hiker show notes for episode 164, there's a, a, a checkout discount to enter, uh, if you want that 15% discount. So uh, have a look at that if, uh, if that may be of use to you. Okay, so that's all for this week's episode. Uh, our next episode in seven days' time, episode 165, we're going to be talking about day hiking. Um Funnily enough, as it sounds, it's not a topic we've actually dealt with previously. <laughs> so uh, We've done a lot of day hikes lately, though. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about the specifics and the do's and don'ts for day hiking. Now, if you want to help support Australian Hiker uh, and help make this a better podcast and a better blog, uh, go to the Australian Hiker website, to the supporter site, and all we're asking you to do is to buy us a coffee. Uh, and you can buy us as many coffees as you like. Uh, (laughs) Any help will be greatly appreciated, and thank you to those people that have already supported us. We greatly appreciate it. Yes, thank you. The the support has been awesome, and, uh, yeah, we appreciate the coffees. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.